Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> if you have a Bible, you can open to John's Gospel. We'll look at chapter 11, um, verses 17 through 27, and the text is also printed in the bulletin for you on the next page. <clears throat> um, while you're turning there, let me pray, then we'll read the Scripture. Father, we're glad for your word. We're glad that we're not left in the dark about our relationship with you, but that we know what kind of God you are because you've sent your son into the world and you've given us your revelation. You've given us your scriptures. We turn there now and pray that you would help us to receive your word with faith, to respond to it with trust in you, to have the confidence that we have a a real relationship with you because of who you are and how you've spoken to us. We pray for your Spirit's help as we consider your word now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, Yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So on Friday mornings uh, each week, the officers of the church get together. That's the, the elders and the deacons of the church. We get together uh, pretty early for coffee, for uh, spiritual conversation. Sometimes we go over a book together. Sometimes we're just talking about life and the scriptures. And so <clears throat> this week uh, it was mentioned that we should be prepared for death. We should be as, not just as humans, but as, especially as Christians, we should be prepared for death. And we agreed uh, on Friday that one's own death can be an easier thought to bear than the death of a loved one, uh, emotionally speaking at least. We, we talked about that a little bit last Sunday as we started into John 11 because this, the story of this, um, this family in Bethany, which is just outside Jerusalem, um, the story of Lazarus and his sisters, Martha and Mary, you see that the sisters have a really hard time. The sisters have a really hard time with the death of their brother Lazarus it actually, uh, it isn't just made better by Jesus. Their, their suffering, their grief, their confusion, their pain <clears throat> over their brother's death is, is real. And, and so people came from nearby Jerusalem, two miles away, about, uh, to comfort and console them because, um, as you may have heard, funerals are for the living, right? Funerals are for the living. And when people come to pay their respects, or they come to a funeral or memorial service, a burial, uh, they really are coming for the living, right, for the grieving, because that's the hard spot to be in. And you hear a lot of platitudes at funerals, 
You hear things like, well, at least they're in a better place. Or, you'll see them again someday. Um, Joe Pope, since he's not here, I'm going to pick on him. He wants it to be said at his funeral that the world is better off now. I know, he's, uh, <clears throat> it's just one last provocative shot there, right? <laughs> Parting shot from Joe Pope. <clears throat> the world is better off now. You're supposed to say things that help people feel better, right? You're supposed to say things that, that help people who are hurting, hurting very desperately sometimes. You're supposed to say things, that, nice things, that distract them from the pain, maybe. Uh, <clears throat> And long after the death of loved ones, uh, we'll, we'll continue to cling to these thoughts as consolation, right? That, that they're watching over us from a state of blessedness. And that one day we'll, we'll all be reunited and things will be good again with those loved ones that we've lost to death. And if you ask a lot of people about their views on the afterlife, the first thing they talk about a lot of times, maybe the, the most important thing about the afterlife, whatever that means the most important thing about it for them is seeing those loved ones again and they've they've pinned their hopes on that that's the center of their hope that's their main hope I mean, that sounds nice doesn't it i mean that's a good thing to hope for and as christians we actually believe something like that will happen it's a good thing to hope for and if people didn't have that hope you got to ask what would they do what would they have people didn't have that hope, what would they have? Despair? It would seem that Martha is uh, struggling to keep herself from despair here. And the unfortunate thing about this interaction that she has with Jesus is that she, she doesn't seem quite able to track with Jesus. They're not exactly on the same page, sort of talking past each other a little bit, uh, because she's pinned her hope on a good thing. Because she's pinned her hope on seeing her brother again. I realize that could be a confusing thing to say, <clears throat> that she's, she's sort of out of step with Jesus because she's pinned her hope on a good thing. It might be confusing, so let's get into the passage, figure out what, what I'm talking about, what, what this, what's going on here. And when Jesus came, remember, he was a couple days' journey away from where they were when he received message. When he came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. And in that culture, it was common to put a dead body in a tomb the same day um, that that person died. So he'd been in the tomb four days. He'd been dead for four days. And Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and to Mary to console them concerning their brother. So this a couple things here about Jerusalem and the, the Jews coming from Jerusalem. It is a bit foreboding as John is writing this gospel. Uh, death is in the air, and people are there from nearby Jerusalem where Jesus' own death will shortly take place. And these people, last time we saw them, last time we saw the Jews from Jerusalem, uh, they were the enemies. They were already calling for blood. They already wanted Jesus dead. So it's a bit foreboding. <clears throat> Verse 20, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Apparently, it was too difficult for Mary to come. 
Again, not hard for us to imagine. She was too deep in grief uh, even to come outside of the city and, and see Jesus as he was coming. But Martha, Martha was the type to busy herself. Martha was the type to distract herself from the pain. We, we learn a bit about their personalities from Luke's gospel. Uh, the, the one instance in the other gospels where Martha and Mary show up in conversation with Jesus and, and the one instance here from John's gospel, they, there's a lot of alignment uh, between their personalities that we see. So we read from Luke 10 where we see them. Now as, they, um, as they went on their way, talking about the disciples, Jesus entered a village, Bethany, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. So um, Martha and Mary are two sisters who relate to Jesus differently. And you see some of their personalities coming through here. The picture that we get here of uh, the two sisters in John 11 is consistent with that picture in Luke. Martha wants to connect with Jesus when she invites him to her home, but um, she has a harder time connecting with Jesus than her sister Mary does. Martha has a harder time of it. It's too easy for her to allow other things to get in the way. Jesus points that out. You're anxious about many things. You're distracted. Even while she opens her home to him, even while she runs to meet him as he's coming to town, this is in some sense the the entirely appropriate reception and welcome that one ought to give to Jesus, it's hard for her really to open herself to him and to embrace him for who he is. That connection is difficult for her to make. Sometimes it can be difficult to imagine someone's attitude or tone in the Scriptures, but I think you can kind of hear it. Let me read verses 21 and 22 in our passage when Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Sometimes it can be hard to hear the tone of someone's voice in the scripture, but I think we're helped here by the fact that Martha's first words to Jesus when she goes out of town and meets him are pretty much identical to Mary's first words to Jesus when she meets him in the next passage that we'll look at next week. They're pretty much identical opening statements, yet their their respective conversations take totally different directions. So so I think it's safe to assume that the, the way that they said those things, those same words, are a little bit different Mary seems overwhelmed. She's overwhelmed with her grief. She can hardly bring herself to stand, let alone go outside and meet Jesus. Martha seems like she's still trying to to manage. She's still trying to cope. And she's probably being a bit passive-aggressive here. (laughs) A bit passive-aggressive. What she's really saying, this is something we all suspect as we read this passage, What she's really saying is only implicit in her actual words. It's really only hinted at in what she says. What she's really saying is something like, 
you know, you could have fixed this problem if you showed up earlier. But you weren't here. What does that say about you? It's okay, because you can redeem yourself, you can fix things now, right? It's, it's a sort of a, a respectful scold. It's not an all-out attack against Jesus, but it's, it's a bit passive-aggressive. It's a bit of a guilt trip. It's the way that you try to get what you want out of someone who is your superior. You don't want to offend them. You want to, they're, they're your good friend. You want to stay on their good side. The, the way that you hint at the fact that they've disappointed you, they've let you down. But it's okay. They can do something about it now. You can fix this problem now. You say it with, with a little bit of sting in your words, but only just a little. Right? It isn't exactly the way one speaks to the one true God who has come in the flesh. But it seems like she doesn't really understand that, that about Jesus. She hasn't connected with him at that level yet. From the way that she talks about him asking things from God and God giving what he asks. Just, just that language. Um, Jesus never talks about God. He just doesn't talk, when he's talking about God, he doesn't talk about, he doesn't use that language. He doesn't say God. He talks about his Father. Every time except for one, when he's on the cross. When he's talking about God, he talks about his Father. So it seems like Martha hasn't made that connection. He hasn't she hasn't understood the nature of his relationship to his father, that he himself is God, that he is one with the father, that the father's in him and he's in the father. That language that uh, we see in John's gospel ha happening just a little bit before this in chapter 10, there's some relational distance, right? There's some problem between her and Jesus. And that's common, even for friends of Jesus, even for those who, in some sense, open their lives to Jesus and rush out to meet Jesus in times of need. It's common to have some relational gap, right? Some problem in the relationship. That's normal. So if that describes you, don't worry. It's okay. Right? But the most important thing to Martha is her brother. The most important thing to her is her family. And Jesus didn't show up in time to save that most important thing for her. She's results-oriented. She's fixated on fixing the problem, fixing what's broken, what went wrong. She wants the good thing, having a brother, being in a loving relationship, having him alive, that's good. That's a good thing. And that's what she wants most. And she's confused because isn't that what Jesus wants too? She assumes that that's the case. It's unclear exactly what she's expecting Jesus to do about it at this point. Uh, it may be that she thinks he's powerful enough to raise Lazarus from the dead, that she understands that much about Jesus, and maybe she's sort of trying to, again, guilt trip, manipulate him into doing that for her. Uh, she has at least a mixture of doubt, right? She knows a lot about Jesus, and she has a relationship with him, but it is, it is highly mixed with her doubts. 
And you see that, I think, especially later, later when he goes to the tomb with the family and everybody and says, open up the tomb, uh, she objects based on the very practical idea that the dead body would stink. So uh, her basic assumption is not that, um, that Lazarus is actually going to come back to life right now. But even though she sort of scolds him, sort of guilt trips him, Jesus continues to engage with her with amazing grace, with terrific grace. He's not put off by that. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. It's a bit of a cold comfort. It's, a bit, it's a long ways off. It doesn't really help the pain right now. Most Jews believed that there would be a resurrection of the dead on the great day of the Lord, the final day of history as we know it. The Sadducees didn't. They were a group of Jews who didn't believe in such things as the resurrection of the body. Uh, but uh, they were probably in a minority, and the Pharisees, uh, they, they, they were the ones with the good theology. So they believed the right stuff. They believed what we believe, basically, that the Bible teaches that on the, the last day of history as we know it, Jesus, uh, the, the Messiah will come and, and bring all the dead to life. And it says that even in Daniel chapter 12, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So, so Martha has some decent theology. Right? And maybe she heard recently some comforters from Jerusalem saying, saying something that sounds like what Jesus just said to her. Jesus said, your brother will rise again. Maybe she heard that recently at the funeral. Don't worry, honey, you'll see Lazarus again someday. But um, there's a bit of a miscommunication between her and Jesus. He isn't giving her the standard platitude about loved ones in the afterlife. He's talking about that very day. That's what he's talking about. And she's maybe looking for some security in her theology, some comfort in having the right doctrine, thinking the right things and having the real biblical worldview, the true and biblical doctrine of the great resurrection on the last day, but her true security, her true comfort was standing right there in front of her. Not just some abstract thoughts about the timeline that we can get out of the Bible, right? You can't abstract your theology and your spiritual hopes from Jesus Christ. You can't separate those things from who he is, from his person. <clears throat> Jesus has to, has to bring her along a little further because she's still fixated on that good thing. She's still fixated on her brother. Getting her brother back is still her ultimate hope. So Jesus confronts her with himself to get her finally to connect with him. Because that's where her real comfort and security will, will be found, in her real connection to him. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. It's not just some future event out there. It's me. I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, that language is pretty strong, whoever believes into, it's like leaning into and placing yourself into Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And 
everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So Jesus has turned this conversation into something much bigger, much bigger than the, the past event of her brother's death, and much bigger even than the future event of Lazarus's resurrection and, and all of our resurrection. This conversation is about something bigger than every single person being raised from the dead, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting death and contempt. This conversation is bigger than that. It's greater than the events of your death and resurrection. It's greater than the events of your loved ones, deaths and resurrections. This conversation has taken a turn for the cosmic because he's talking about himself. He's speaking directly about himself and realities like resurrection and life only have meaning with regard to him. On the one hand, he's talking about resurrection. That's what he says first. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life, and he gives you sort of those two categories and then talks about each one in the verse that follows. But on the one hand, he's talking about resurrection and says that those who believe in him, even though we undergo this bodily death at, at the end of this life, even though that happens to us, we will be raised bodily. We will be raised bodily, made whole in the new heavens and the new earth to live forever with Jesus. And this is, this is true of us because of our union with Christ. That's what he's talking about when he, when he says, anyone who believes into me, who becomes united to me through faith, is true of us because of our union with Christ, because our salvation works this way, that whatever's true of him as our representative is true of us. He was raised from the dead bodily, never to die again, with a a pretty interesting physical reality, you might say, the things that happened uh, with him after his resurrection. He was raised from the dead bodily and continues forever as the first fruits of the new creation. He's the first born from the dead, the first of the new creation. And so we sing, Jesus lives and so shall I. Jesus lives Therefore, so shall I. That's what we're saying. He says exactly that uh, in John 14, later in this gospel. Because I live, you also will live. And John, in his letter, in 1 John chapter 3, says that we know that when he appears on that day, on that great day of resurrection, when he appears, we shall be like him. That means we'll be immortal. We'll never die again after that. Death won't be a thing anymore. We'll be incorruptible. We'll be forever free from any cause, any potential cause of death. It'll never happen. Death itself will be vanquished and removed from our reality altogether because our Savior is the life, and He has the life in Himself, and He will reign over all things. Augustine said about this passage and said of Jesus here that he's, he's the rex- resurrection because he's the life. The resurrection because the life. And that, uh, so Peter talks about this, I think, in his sermon in Acts chapter 2, where he's talking about Jesus. He says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Death could not hold him. 
because he is the life. He's the son of the father. He's the one who's in eternal communion with his father, which is the very definition of true life. He is the life. He's the one who lives with God, and the one who lives with the living God can never die. To be united to the living God means eternal life. Verse 26, he says, everyone who lives, and that's what he means by lives, anyone who's united to the living God, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And that language is, he shall not die the eternal death. Jesus is the one in relationship with God, and through him, through his relationship with God, we may have relationship with God that, that lasts forever. And that means eternal life and not eternal death. And so it is a necessity then that we would be raised to live with him forever. If you're united to Christ by faith, it is an absolute necessity that you will be raised because you have the life in you, because Christ is in you. That's the Christian hope. Relationship with God that will never end. That's the Christian hope. Not just seeing loved ones again. That might be nice. That might be good. It might be very good. But if that's all you're looking forward to after death, then maybe you're ignoring Jesus. And the good is distracting you from the best. Seeing loved ones again, it's good. Having your cares and your burdens lifted forever, taken away, good. Every tear wiped away, good. All fears cast out perfectly, good. Resurrection and restoration of the body to health and immortality, good. All good things, but they mean nothing if you abstract them from Jesus Christ. They mean nothing if you abstract them and take them and separate them from Jesus Christ, because he is everything. He's the resurrection and the life. He's everything. He is the supreme reality from God in this world, and trusting him means all these benefits, all these good things. That's what trusting him means, but he himself is the chief and central benefit of all. He himself. And not even death can separate you from him. Leslie Newbegin says that resurrection is no longer a mere doctrine. It's not just having some worldview. It's not just having some timeline in your head, some distant hope, far off, a cold comfort. Resurrection is no longer a mere doctrine. It has a living face and a name. Resurrection has a living face and a name. Resurrection means Jesus Christ. Life means Jesus Christ. And this one, who is the resurrection and the life, asks Martha, and he asks you, do you believe this? Do you believe this? So which is more real to you? Life as perceived for yourself? and by your own senses? Or life as, uh, as believed, as declared 
to you by Jesus Christ himself. Life as perceived for yourself and by your senses as you look around at this world, it means death. That's what this world has to offer, apart from Christ, apart from faith in Christ, apart from his declaration and his revelation and his resurrection. Life in this world, it just means death. It's that nothing that's hanging on the horizon, like the, the dark clouds of, of reality coming to drench you with sorrow and, and despair and meaninglessness. It's that hurricane coming to rob you of everything, no matter how tightly you're clinging to all those good things. That's the death that we see when we look around us with these eyes. But, but life, life as, as believed, as declared to you by Jesus Christ, that means resurrection. That means victory over death. That means the regeneration of your soul now, a resurrection, a real coming to new life in your relationship with God now as a child of God. And it means the, the ultimate renewal and fulfillment of your whole person in the, the completion of life that's beyond death. The life that's beyond the reach of death. Beyond the thought of death. The life that's with God in Christ in the resurrection. Believing Jesus, like he asks, do you believe this? Believing Jesus, trusting Jesus, means finding your true hope in him and your true life in him, in himself. Not just in nice, good benefits that come from knowing him, like seeing your dead loved ones again someday. Your loved ones are not the life. Your loved ones are not the resurrection. Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. So don't let your, your hope for good things like that prevent you from connecting with the, the best, which is in Jesus himself. And you, you're not the resurrection in the life either. Let that sink in. You can't manage everything. You can't hold death off, your own death or your loved one's death. You can't restore everything. You can't do everything right to warrant being in a relationship with God. You can't warrant, you can't achieve eternal life with God. That relationship that you want with God, you can't make it happen. You can't manage it. It isn't your faith that guarantees and ushers in the resurrection and life with God. Your faith is all weak and crumbly and, and porous. Jesus is your hope. He's your only hope. He's your very real hope. Your, your yes to Jesus sounds pretty hollow and pretty tinny most of the time when compared to his resounding yes to you, which is your life. Jesus has said yes to you, even though it cost him his own life. He said yes to you, and that, that's your hope. Martha said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who's coming into the world. I mean, she, she's saying great things. This is some of the best stuff anybody's said about Jesus yet clearest stuff, but she isn't really articulating back to Jesus an understanding of what he's been talking about, an understanding of him as the resurrection and the life in terms of what he just said to her. She's using the biblical categories that, that she's familiar with. That's good. That's fine. Basically, she doesn't fully understand Jesus, but that's okay. Who does? Not me. 
He doesn't turn away from her. He goes to the cross for her. She's stuck on the good things. She has a really hard time not being stuck on the good things, like the life of her brother Lazarus. And he still comes in mercy, and he still interacts with her graciously, and he still reveals himself and says, keep your eyes on me for your relationship with God. So even if you're stuck on his benefits, even if it's, it's way easier for you to love and appreciate the gifts more than the giver, right? stuck on his benefits as abstracted from him, he's coming to you in grace. He always has. And he is now, and he always will. He's coming to you in grace because of who he is. Martha doesn't have it all figured out. She doesn't need to. You don't either. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He himself. Jesus has it all figured out. And he's got you. He's got you. Amen. So let's pray. Praise be to God for Christ. Father, we come to you in the name of Christ, asking that you would keep our eyes fixed on Christ. We love you for who you are, because you first loved us and you gave your son Jesus for us. We love you with a pretty weak love, pretty distracted love, and it is hard for us to connect with you all the time, Lord. So we pray that you would, in your great love, pursue us, Track us down as the great lover that you are and give yourself to us. Help us to to fix our eyes on you as you've called us to do in your scriptures, to fix our eyes, fix them on you as the, the great, ultimate, supreme, central benefit, the great reality of all reality. You are the resurrection and the life, our Lord Jesus. And so we worship you and pray, um, Pray that you would be with us in a way that makes increasing sense to us and gives us increasing delight as we go through this life. We pray that you would help us to believe you, believe your word to us. We pray this in your name. Amen.